morning, everybody. As has been said, our reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 14, reading verses 1 to 11. John 14, 1 to 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. We got volume, yep. Well, again, it is a privilege to be able to open God's Word uh, with you. Please, if you have your Bible, uh, keep it open or if we have it on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, But just before we jump in, uh, let's just pray one more time and ask the Lord for His help and blessing on the preaching of His Word. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you only through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess that apart from him, we have no part with you. Uh, We acknowledge that he is the head of the church. This is his church. He is the Lord and we are his body. Father, we pray and we desperately need uh, that work of the Holy Spirit. Only he can give life. He is the one that brings illumination to the word. Your word is living and active. We are the ones that are dull. We are the ones that grow cold and we are the ones that are often blind. So please bring your word uh, with power to our hearts. I pray that uh, no person, no individual young and old uh, today would uh, leave unchanged. And I pray that you would be revealing Christ as he truly is, irresistible. Uh, Irresistible. May he be shown to be that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take very long for the person who becomes a Christian to realize that the journey is not all rosy and that when you become a Christian, it doesn't necessarily fix everything. It doesn't fix relationships. It doesn't necessarily fix marriage. Uh, there's lots of burdens. It doesn't fix the work pressures. And 
more often than not, it actually brings more problem and more trouble. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this reality. It doesn't seek to present Christianity as this smooth path. It doesn't do that. And we face many, many troubles. But the Bible also presents God as the God of all comfort. Jesus as the Prince of, priests, our, uh, of Peace, our elder brother. Even in Psalm 23, David can say almost this contradiction even in the valley of the shadow of death your rod and your staff they comfort me so there is turmoil but there is peace and this is exactly what's needed here for the disciples in our in our passage they need comfort they need peace because when we arrive at John chapter 14 here we're at a unique point in John's gospel this is uh, not just any night this is the night this is the final night that Jesus is with them. And so much happens on this final night. He crams everything into this final night. He teaches them. He instructs them. He institutes the Lord's Supper, which we're about to have. And now he wants to teach them something very, uh, very important. Think if you only had one night left, what would you go and say to people? What would you want to communicate? This is Jesus' final night. So whatever he says, we need to listen very carefully. So he's much to say to them, but look what he does here, uh, which is very interesting. Look at, look at the beginning of uh, verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, now that's a very interesting statement there because look what he said in the previous chapter, th chapter 13, verse 33. He said to his disciples, My children, I'll be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then again in verse 36, he says to them, uh, to Peter, uh, Lord, Peter says, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now but you'll follow later. So in, in this sense, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And the disciples must be thinking, what are you talking about? He's just said to them, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. This has been a shattering night. And then he says, I'm going to leave and you can't come with me. And then he says, don't be troubled. And they must be thinking, we have left everything to follow you and now you're leaving us. How can you just say, don't be troubled, after you're going to desert us? And so they are troubled, and Jesus picks up on it. They're deeply saddened because they deeply loved him. And he's going away. Nevertheless, Jesus sees them perplexed and sad, and he seeks to comfort them. And this brings a great revelation about who Jesus is. Think about this. He seeks to alleviate their stress. He seeks to comfort them. Who needed comfort this night? What was ahead of him? He even said to them, one of you is going to betray me. On top of that, one of my most loyal disciples is going to deny me three times. Very soon I'm going to be handed over to trial and the jury are going to be my worst enemies. They're going to sentence me to death, death by crucifixion. They're going to nail me hands and feet to the cross. On top of that, me who knew no sin, I am going to bear the sin of the world. And on top of that, on the cross, he will bear 
the unmitigated holy fury and wrath of his angry father because he's going to bear sin. And it says he seeks to comfort them. This is Christ. As if they were completely oblivious to everything he was about to go through and he seeks to comfort them. You see, Jesus is not unmoved and indifferent about our troubles. He is not a distant saviour. He cares for us incredibly deeply. And if you think, well, Jesus can handle it. He's the son of God. He'll be all right. He can endure all of that. Just read a few chapters ahead and look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He walks in that garden and it says he falls on his face and he begins to sweat drops like blood. And he cries out, Father, if there is any other way, any other way than me having to bear sin and be punished for their sins and to face your anger. If there's any other way, let it happen. This was no small task for him. Jesus loved his disciples. He loves his disciples. How will he comfort them now? He says, don't be troubled. How's he going to do it? Well, the same way that he comforts us when we're troubled. First thing, the medicine that he gives Jesus prescribes them to a deeper trust and faith in him. Look at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Believe in God. The, the Greek there is the idea, keep on believing in him. God is reliable. God is dependable. Don't lose heart in God with all of this. God is a faithful God. In the same breath, he says, have faith also in me. He's saying to them, I've been with you for three years. When have I ever let you down? When have I ever wronged you? When have you never been able to count on me? Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's inviting them to himself. You see, they had believed in him for salvation. Yes, they were saved. Now they needed to keep on believing in him. You see, for three years, they mostly walked by sight and didn't really need a whole lot of faith. But now Jesus is going and they need to live like us. They need to walk by faith and not sight because he's not going to be here. Keep trusting in me, he says. And Jesus can say, have faith in God in the same breath, have faith in me. If, if there is a statement in the Bible that confirms that Jesus is fully God, this is it. Have faith in God. Have faith also in me. Who would dare say that apart from God himself? If Jesus isn't God and he tells us to have faith in him, he's telling all of his disciples to commit idolatry. Have faith also in me. So what's the cure for a troubled heart? Renewed confidence in Jesus Christ, in God our Father and the Savior Jesus Christ. Let me quote A.W. Pink. He says this summarizing what Christ is saying here. Quote, O Christian, let not your heart be troubled, for thy father is on the throne. What though trials come thick and fast? What though I am misunderstood and unappreciated? What though Satan roar and rage against me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Believe in God. 
believe in his absolute sovereignty, in his infinite wisdom, his unchanging faithfulness, his wondrous love. Believe also in me, Jesus says. I am the one who died for your sins and rose again for your justification. I am the one who ever lives to make intercession for you. Yes, believe also in me. This is what we need. Renewed confidence in Christ. So this is the first thing Christ gives these troubled hearts. The second thing he gives them is the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus calls heaven my Father's house. Why does he do that? Because my father's house is to, is to convey this sense of heaven is home. Heaven is to be home. The home of God and the home of his people. This is what he's doing here. Now, we kind of lose the, the imagery of home these days, uh, the way li- lifestyle and society works. For example, my wife and I, we've been married for about six years and we've lived in, seven different, in six different houses. We've rented that many times. We've had to move, come and go, not because we're bad tenants. That's just the way <laughs> renting works. But when you live in so many different houses, everywhere feels like home or nothing feels like home. I don't know which one it is. But here Jesus is trying to show us heaven, my Father's house is home. It's a place of safety. It's a place where you will belong. It's a place of refuge. And that's what home even today is supposed to convey. When you're working out in the world and you're toiling and you're laboring, home is a place where you can come where there is solace and rest. And Jesus says that's what heaven is like. There was an old hymn that I used to sing at the previous church. And some of you may remember it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what would I do? The angels beckon me to heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Christian, for the present, if you're a disciple of Christ, we are living in enemy territory at the moment. But it's only temporary. We're passing through and we're heading to the new Jerusalem that will be our home forever. We're on the way through. But this is not our home. And Jesus points them to where their home will be. And Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Many rooms. Now that word there in the Greek, I think some translations miss it when they say, in my Father's house are many mansions. I think that conveys the wrong idea. Literally it means many dwelling places, many houses, many rooms. The point that Jesus is saying is, there is plenty of space. In my Father's house, there's more than enough room. For every single Christian who's ever lived in history, there's room for them. For every Christian presently alive on earth, there's plenty of room. And for every Christian that God will call in His grace in the future, there's plenty of room. And there's plenty of room for all the armies of heaven, the angelic hosts. There's plenty of room in my Father's house. There's plenty of space. And isn't it interesting, Jesus says... I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now that should cause us to ask a few questions. Is heaven under construction? Is heaven not ready? Does heaven need some work before people can go there? Because Jesus says he has to go to prepare a place. What's he talking about here? Understand this. 
Heaven is ready. Heaven is fine. When he says he has to prepare a place, he's not talking about heaven that needs to be prepared. He is talking about the work that he needs to go and do now so that his people can go and get there. So that his people can make it there. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's talking about the next day. He's talking about going to the cross as a sin offering. He's talking about being killed and being punished for sinners, for being dead for three days and to rise again. You see, heaven is ready. The problem is we weren't. We're not fit for heaven. So Jesus has to go to the cross so that he can make us fit for heaven. His death takes away our sin so that we can enter. His resurrection satisfies God and ensures that we too will be resurrected because he defeats death. That's what he's going to do to prepare a place for us. Heaven was fine. We weren't. We weren't. And this is where he went. And notice again, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. No man could have made preparations for us. No mere man. No angel in heaven. None. A man needed to pay for sin. But all men are sinners. And so the Son of God had to come. He goes and he does it. And this is a wonderful, wonderful truth here. As Christians, all that we receive, all that we have ever received has been given to us and prepared by God. All of it is prepared by the Lord. And this is the heart of the gospel. That everything that we receive has been given to us. That's why the New Testament calls heaven and eternal life our inheritance. How does an inheritance work? You get treasures, you get wealth put into your account for the sweat and labors of another. You did not work for that wealth. You did not work for that. Someone else did. And you get the benefits. Heaven is our inheritance because Christ earned it. It is the gracious gift of God. It is by grace. You do not make yourself fit for heaven. Jesus makes us fit. It's not by works. It is by works. Christ works. His work on the cross. And we see it's always been like this in the scripture. It changes the way you read the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, when God brought them out of Israel, out of Egypt, what does God say when he's about to bring them into the promised land? Note the parallels here. Deuteronomy 6 verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land flourish, a land that is large, flourishing with cities that you did not build, houses with all kinds of goods that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. What's God saying? I have rescued you out of Egypt and everything that you get in the land, I have prepared for you. And it's the same with heaven. God has prepared it all. He did it in the work of his son. Let no one boast. So understand this. When we finally breathe our last breath, 
or when Christ comes back and we cross over to the other side and when our eyes see things that no tongue can utter and we see things that are indescribable, there will not be one millimeter of room for boasting, but every Christian will say in unison, I only enter because Jesus prepared it all. That's it. No boasting. You've been saved by grace, not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. That is the gospel. Any other gospel is false. And did you notice here something interesting? Jesus says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. You see, heaven, Jesus' disciples are sorrowful and sad that he's going But Jesus doesn't give a promise of heaven just to kind of comfort them and give them some kind of false hope just to to satisfy them and to keep them quiet. Think about this. When someone's sick and someone is dying, what do people often do? What do they say? Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. It's all going to turn out fine. Everything's going to be all right. Just a couple of years ago, my brother was diagnosed with cancer. And, it came, and he was completely healthy, came out of the blue. They found a massive mass on his chest. And when they found it, they knew if we're going to have any chance of this, we need to get to it right now. And he went into the hospital and they did major treatment on him. Now, when he went to the hospital, it was a massive shock to all the family. None of us saw it coming. And he, he went on social media and he put up on Facebook telling everyone, here's what's going on. The doctors need to act straight away. If they don't do it now, I might not live. Now, when he put that on social media, he put that on Facebook, and you start to see the comments that came through. I went on and I had a look, and people are saying, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. It's all going to work out. You're going to come out of this stronger. Another comment said, this cancer doesn't know who it's messing with. Another person commented saying, you're going to beat this. You're going to get through this. And you understand the sentiment, right? You understand what people are doing. But at the end of the day, that's false assurance. It's, it's, there's no true assurance in that. They're trying to comfort. They're trying to give words of encouragement, but they can't be certain. Jesus is not doing that here. He doesn't come up with the idea of heaven just to make them look forward to something. This is a complete promise here. You see, atheists like Richard Dawkins, they mock Christianity and the teaching of heaven thinking, well, the world is just so terrible, so Christians come up with this idea of heaven as this escape mentality, and heaven's nothing more of a fairy tale and a myth for people who can't cope with this life. That's not true. Because Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. But it is so. It's very real. It's very, very real. And it's up ahead waiting for you. And you will be with me. It's all true. It's not an empty promise. It's completely true. Christian, take hold of that promise. It's yours in Christ Jesus. And no one can take that away. No one. So Jesus is comforting his disciples. We've seen him call them to renewed confidence. We've seen him give them the hope of heaven. And now we see him give them the promise of his return. His return. Look at verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Jesus says, I'm going, but this isn't final goodbyes. 
I'm coming back. I'm not forsaking you. I will not leave you as orphans. I must go, but I'm coming back for you. And so great, take hold of this, so great is his love for us. When all is said and done, he's not going to go call someone to send for us. Go and get my people. He will come himself for us. He is personally coming back for his bride. He loves us. We get that wonderful promise in 1 Thessalonians 4. The trumpet shall sound at the voice and command of the archangel and the Lord shall descend and we will meet him in the clouds. He will come back for us personally because we are his and he's returning with a purpose. He says to take you to be with me that where I'm going you may be also. You're coming to be with me. Here's the truth as well. Jesus longs for Christians to be with him. Whenever you attend a Christian funeral, whether it's someone who's very young or whether it's someone old, understand God has answered the prayer of his son. We, we suffer loss. But you read a few chapters ahead in John chapter 17 and Jesus prays to the Father, Father, those that you give me in this world, I want them to be with me where I'm going. I want them to see my glory. I want them to be with me. Every time a Christian dies, God answers his son's prayer. He wants us to be with him. Jesus is lovesick for his people. He loves us and he wants us with him. And Jesus, when he talks about heaven, he's not concerned about streets of gold. He's not concerned about rolling hills and perfect weather. That's not how he describes heaven. He's de he describes heaven as himself. You get to be with me. Do you remember the thief on the cross? I promise you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's about Christ. Paul longed to get to heaven. But where was his desire? In Philippians 1.23, my desire is to, is to depart and be with Christ. That's heaven. It's not so much about the place, but apart from being with Christ. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if Jesus wasn't there. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. And so here's the promise that he's coming back for us. I read this wonderful thing. There was a doctor named A.L. Gabeline. And there was this treasure that was passed down through, from his ancestors, generation to generation, generation. It was a German Bible. And it went through so many generations. And he says this, when you pick up this German Bible, you could open up to virtually any passage and it was kept in such pristine condition, like it was fresh off the press. But then he said, if you would to turn in that Bible to John chapter 14, you would notice something. It's wrinkled, it's spotted, it's spoiled, and it's been stained by the tears of many generations. John chapter 14 is comfort and medicine for Christians. It is. There was the, also the, a biography written of the 18th century preacher Henry Venn, an incredible man. And in his biography, when he came to the end of his life, he was dying and he was on his deathbed. He was about to go any moment. They were waiting for it. And this is what the biography states about him. Let me quote it. It says, The prospect of being with Jesus in heaven 
made him so high-spirited and jubilant that his doctor said that his joy at dying kept him alive a further fortnight. (laughs) The absolute rapture and joy of what was awaiting him. Jesus promised there's plenty of room in heaven. I'm going to prepare it and I'm coming back for you. And what's so wonderful about this, John, the, the Apostle John, he was listening to Jesus utter these words. But your Bible, John chapter 14, John was written decades later when John was an elderly man, when he was an old man. From when Jesus first said these promises to him to when he wrote them, John had been waiting a long, long time. He'd been waiting for these promises. He'd been hoping for so long. Let me assure you right now, John is no longer waiting and he is no longer hoping. Oh, to see what the eyes of the Apostle John sees right now. John, what are you seeing right now? And he encourages us with these words. Christ Christ. Verse 4. You know the way, the place to where I am going. Verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Forgive Thomas. But verse 6, as I said when I came up earlier, probably the most misunderstood, controversial, powerful statement that Jesus ever uttered. Verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now I want to say something. You cannot understand this verse if you do not believe Genesis. If you don't know Genesis, you cannot understand this verse. When Adam and Eve fell and they sinned, they were cursed by God. And every single human that has been born from Adam and Eve has been under God's curse. That's what it teaches us. Adam previously enjoyed fellowship and communion with God. And it was lost. The moment they sinned, it was lost. And every subsequent person born has been under this curse. Jesus comes, we see in this verse, as our greatest need. Now let me just pull apart this verse and we'll finish on this verse. Please stay with me. Firstly, he says, I am the way. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They were banished from the presence of God, cut off from God, separated from God. They were now lost. That's what sinners are called in Scripture, lost. And and we too now, every single person born in this world, Scripture teaches, is born banished from the presence of God, fellowship with God. We're not born in right relationship with God. And Jesus comes as, as the way back to God. This is what he is saying here. And it's no secret that people have tried to make their way to God. They understand that we're banished from God. So every generation in history has tried to make their way back to God. What has man tried? What have they attempted? We have set up religions. We do many works. We try and do good deeds. We participate in charities. Some people afflict great self-denial on themselves. We do all of these things to try and reach God. Every generation, every generation has been guilty of rebuilding Babel. 
Everyone. We try and reach God, but we cannot breach the gap. We cannot reach Him. Every tower we make of righteousness ends up being a house of cards and it falls. We can't do it because we're sinners. We can't get to Him. And so, we could not get to God, so God comes to us. We can't go up. God comes down. And Jesus arrives saying, I am the way. And understand this. There is a terrible teaching in Christianity today that looks at this kind of verse that Jesus is the way. And all they teach about Jesus is that he is the example. He's an example for us. You need to follow Jesus. Learn from Jesus. That's not what he's talking about here. I am the way. He's saying the only way to God is through me. I am the route. I am the ladder. I am the door, he says later in John. Not merely an example to follow. He is the way. He is the way back to God. And secondly, you see in that verse, he says, I am the truth. Man is born ignorant of the truth. What happened again? Go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve believed the lie and were deceived. Every single person born from Adam and Eve believes the lie. We're born ignorant of the truth. What are we ignorant of? We're ignorant of who God is, the Trinity. We're born ignorant of who He is. We're ignorant of who we are. We don't understand our sinfulness. People often say, just believe in your heart. Trust your heart. No, no, it says the Bible says the heart's wicked. Don't trust your heart. And we're ignorant of our predicament. You talk to people when we evangelize on the streets and witness. Uh, do you think you're going to heaven? Yes, I think I'm going to heaven. Why do you think you're going to heaven? Because I'm a good person. No. No one's good, the Bible says. We are born ignorant of the truth. And we're born ignorant of the only way to get to God. And that's Jesus Christ. And, we're, and if, you, if, you, if you don't agree with this, let me tell you that Scripture teaches, Ephesians 4.18, it says, Paul says, The world are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This is the curse of sin. We're born ignorant of the truth. And, and people... And I don't know how people can deny this. Because again, every generation has gone on the, the, the same quest. What is the meaning of life, right? What is the meaning of life? And man searches, and they search, and they search, and they search, and they're looking in all the wrong places. Because we're ignorant of the truth. That's the curse of sin on us, that we're born into. And Jesus comes down and says, I am the truth. Here I am. See, David, he spoke the truth. Elijah, he spoke the truth. Moses, John, Paul, they all spoke the truth. But none of them would dare say, I am the truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Truth incarnate came down. The answer came down. All knowledge is found in Jesus Christ. You see, there are people in this world that are incredibly intelligent, incredibly bright. You have people who are masters and professors of economy, philosophy, physics, and science, and all of these things. But understand this. Their certificates and degrees will mean nothing when they're in hell. It will mean nothing. And you, you might not be a brilliant intellectual. 
You might not have any credentials, academic achievements, but if you have Jesus Christ, it says of Jesus, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You are the wisest person in the world if you have Christ because he is the truth. Isn't that wonderful? God has made foolish what the world calls wise. And then he says, I am the life. Again, Genesis what did God warn Adam and Eve? I tell you the truth. If you eat of the tree that has been forbidden, on that day you will surely die. You will surely die. And what happened? Eat they did. And what happened? Die they did. And you say, well, they didn't die. Well, from that day on, they became mortal. Death started coursing through their veins. They started aging from that day on. And even more importantly, they died spiritually. They died spiritually. They lost. They lost that fellowship with God. They lost it. And man, Scripture says that we are dead in sin. Dead in sins. This is part of the curse. We're cut off from the life of God. You, if you have social media, or even if you don't, take a look on social media or take a walk in the streets and, and look on the news. People look very much alive, don't they? People are on holidays. People are accomplishing great feats and, and achievements. The world looks very much alive. But understand this. The world, unbelievers, are nothing more than whitewashed tombs. That's what Scripture says. That's what it says. People with all their achievements, all they are doing are painting their graves and dressing up the flowers. Yes, they look very, very much alive. But dig a little deeper and all you will find are dead man's bones. The scripture says mankind is dead in sins. Dead in sins. That's what it teaches. This is the curse. And then one comes down from heaven and says, I am the life. Do you see how he comes as our greatest need? I am the life. And again, this is where it's so misunderstood. It's not just that Jesus is able to give life. It's not just that he's the one that God chose and selected and says, okay, you're going to be the one to give and hand out eternal life to people. No, Jesus, I am the life in him. He alone possesses the life of God and therefore he can administer it. He gives life. He said in John chapter 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he is crossed from death to life. He also said in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and life abundant. See, Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't come to merely repair people. He comes to resurrect people. Jesus wasn't in the business of making makeovers and helping good people become better people. He came to bring revival. Paul says you were dead, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. You were dead before you were a Christian, and God made you alive in Christ. Christianity is not simply a moral religion. It's a resurrection of sinners. That's what it is. Oh, I have nothing less of Christianity. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And look how he underscores this. The hardest part of the verse. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. No one goes to the Father. Remember what he just said earlier? In my Father's house, he's referring to heaven here. No one gets to heaven, he says. This statement here is the most incredibly narrow-minded and exclusive statement anyone could ever say. 
Think, think about the words here. And Jesus isn't just saying, I am a way that people can get to heaven. You know when you're going on a drive and you punch your address into your GPS and then it gives you the option, do you want to take tolls or no tolls? There's all these different routes that you can get to your destination. Jesus isn't saying that I'm just one of those routes. He is saying that no one will get to heaven except through him. This passage, when I often teach it to the children at our church, I like to give them the example like this. John 14, 6, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, there's plenty of room. It's a glorious, enormous kingdom. But understand, this glorious kingdom only has one entry door, and you're looking at it. One entrance. Jesus says, and in one swoop, in one sentence, he denounces every religion in the whole world. He says, everything out there, everything is a lie. It's all from hell. It's all from Satan, because I am the only way. Do you understand? This is why Christians are hated. This is why Christians are killed. This is why Jesus says, you'll have trouble in this world, because we have an exclusive message. He's the only way. That's why they killed him. That's why they killed the disciples. And that's why the world will not love you. But it's okay. Christ does. Christ does. And so this is really, really important. We need to, we need to accept this. This is Christ's message. But I must give the warning here as we wrap up. Who is all of this prepared for? Who, who gets all these benefits? Jesus gave another warning. Note the parallel. Not everyone gets to heaven. In Matthew 25, verse 41, note the, note, note the resemblance to our passage. He says this, To unbelievers on judgment day, I will say, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you hear that word prepared? Didn't we just hear that before about heaven? Christ has prepared a way of salvation for people to be forgiven and to get to heaven. But because of sin and ungodliness, because of the devil and his wickedness, God prepared a place called hell, eternal punishment. But God says all who reject the Son, all who choose to sin and live in ungodliness, you will also go to a place that has been prepared, the lake of fire. And the scripture says it is the place that burns forever. There is no escape. There's no second chances there. And so let me close. Right here before us, before every person in this room, every person watching, before your very eyes has been set before you, the way, the truth, and the life. He is not held back from any person here. And he says, if you would live, come and believe in me. Burn your ladders. Burn your efforts to try and get to heaven. Renounce your own righteousness. You are not good but I am good and I have come down so that sinners might be saved. Put your faith in him and if you do, you have all of these promises for you. They're yours. They're yours. Let me pray. Our Father, we come before you and we confess that your word is wonderful. Your word is amazing. And in your word, we have the message of salvation. Lord, every single one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, are guilty of sin. But we thank you so much because of your love for sinners, because of grace and mercy 
that belong to you, that you have made a way of salvation for us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wonderful. He is glorious. He is a great Savior, but he is the only Savior. I pray for each person this morning, Lord, that they would not leave these doors. They would not leave these doors in their sin and self-righteousness, but they would come and fall at the foot of the cross, fall at the feet of Jesus and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh God, may you grant eternal life even this morning, not because we deserve it, but for your name's sake. May you reward your son with more salvations, more conversions, that the church may continually be built. Christ will build his church. May you do it for his sake. Lord, we thank you for our time together. May you be glorified in all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.